you have a copy of Scripture, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. I invite you to turn there with me. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. This morning, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It speaks to us. And Father, I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, may it convict us where we need conviction. May we experience grace where we need grace. What we need to hear this morning, Lord, I pray that we would hear it and our lives would be changed, not because of a good sermon, but because of your word this morning. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I want to talk about when God tests us. I know the bulletin says you because I did that before I left and then I changed it to us, but we ask you, insert whatever you want in there, but when God tests us, <clears throat> in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 13, we are told to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The Lord lays absolute claim on us in all that we are and all that we have. As our maker and our sovereign God, he has the right to demand from us anything that he so pleases to demand. And whatever he requires of us, we must give. First Chronicles chapter 29 verse 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All that we have comes from God and is to be used for his glory and at his disposable. Disposal, First Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I and what is my people? And we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. Now, as followers of Christ, we are under this deep obligation to part with whatever it is that God asks us to part with. Our gratitude for Christ and the salvation that he has given to us is to cause us to loosen our grip on everything that is temporal on this earth, knowing the promises of God and how greatly or how great they are, should cause us as followers of Christ to surrender freely whatever he asks us to surrender in our lives. We will never lose by giving up anything to God. Now, 
we can know all of this and we can say it sure sounds great, but the fact remains until we exercise faith, it is meaningless. Faith causes us to yield to God. Faith causes us to respond to the claims of God. Faith causes us to trust in the promises of God. And faith drives us to obedience when God calls us. In Genesis chapter 22, we read that God came to Abraham and tested him. God tells Abraham to take Isaac, the son that he loves, and the son who will continue the line of promise up to the land of Moriah and to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. And we know what a burnt offering is. It's a, a burnt offering happens when an animal is slain, its blood is drained, and its carcass is burned. Any father told to do this to his son would be tested beyond anything that he could possibly imagine. And this is how Abraham was tested. What will Abraham do? Abraham is obedient. Apart from the obedience of Christ, Abraham's obedient faith to sacrifice his only son is the greatest act of faith recorded in all of Scripture. The purpose of the author of Hebrews for including this here in Hebrews chapter 11 is to show these believers who remember are facing trials under threats of persecution that faith can overcome any obstacle, any barrier, any problem, any circumstance, even when that circumstance seems contrary to the promise of God. Faith does obtain a blessing, if not in this life, then in eternity, and it does so by looking to God, not the circumstance. And so often we get wrapped up in our circumstances, and we forget that God is more significant than our problem. God is more significant than the circumstance that we are facing. But the more we trust in God, the more we use our faith, the stronger our faith will grow. But we must understand that God will test our faith in order to grow us, which leads to our first point this morning. God will test our faith. God will test our faith. Verse 17 starts out by telling us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. It's abundantly clear that God was the one doing the testing. When it says he was tested, he offered up Isaac. Well, who asked him to offer up Isaac? God did. So God is the one doing the testing. The New Testament makes it clear that God will test our faith. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 6, uh, 1 Peter 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read about testing through fire, it doesn't sound very appealing. And yet that's a, precisely what Peter says, that our faith will be tested through fire. When you think of God testing our faith, I want to make a few things clear. First, the test is never beyond what we can handle. The test is never beyond what we can handle. Now, I'm not trying to, to split hairs when it comes to this whole idea of the test not being beyond what we can handle. And I understand that often we misquote the verse that I'm about to use, but I'm going to 
attempt to prove to you why the test is never beyond what we can handle. I, I want us to understand Scripture, and I believe that we will never face the test of our faith that is more than we can handle. Paul explains to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That word tempted in 1 Corinthians comes from the exact same Greek verb that is translated as tested in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. James gives an explanation when he says this, let no one say when he is tempted, same exact verb, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now here is what we must understand. God tests us. God tests us. However, every testing has the potential to be a temptation if we give in to our own desire. So God tests us, but every test that we go through has the potential to be a temptation if we give in to our own desire. Temptation does not come from God. Temptation comes from our own sinful desire. If we sin while being tested, you don't get to blame God. You can't say, well, God, you tested me and caused me to sin. Because He provides a way of escape in every test and will never test you beyond what you can handle. If you fail a test by giving in to temptation, your own sinful desire, you don't get to blame God. Just like when you fail a test in school or anywhere else, you don't get to blame the teacher. You can't say, well, it's your fault. You made this test too hard, teacher. Too bad. I guess you should have studied. And if you fail the spiritual test, you don't have the privilege of blaming God. Instead, we need to examine our life and find out why we fail to learn from that failure. Proverbs tells us when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. The point is that we get in trouble by our own stupidity. And then we try to blame God for our problem. But rather than rage against God, we must accept responsibility and understand that the reason for our failure is not on God, it's all on you. God tests our faith, but He never tests us beyond what we can handle. Here is the question that we often find ourselves asking when it comes to our faith being tested. Why? God, why? Why are you testing my faith? Well, God tests our faith to reveal that it is genuine and to help us grow. God tests our faith to reveal that our faith is genuine and to help us grow. There are times when our faith is tested. And we will go through struggles wondering why God is testing us. And the purpose of the test is is not to cause us to fail, but to reveal that our faith is indeed a genuine faith and will cause us to grow. If our faith is not tested, 
then we don't know if our faith is real or not. The testing of our faith reveals the strength of our faith. If we trust wholly in God in the midst of the testing of our faith, then our faith will grow even stronger. We know it is this way with, with things that, uh, of life, right? We know that when we learn something, that we must continually practice that thing to stay sharp in what we learn. When we learn a skill, we practice it over and over again to stay sharp in that skill. If you are a salesman, then you learn to sell and you take classes and you learn little techniques on how to sell stuff and, and that sort of thing. And it helps you sell even more. And the more you sell stuff, the better you become at selling. It's just the same way with faith. It works the same way. When our faith is tested, then we are allowed an opportunity to practice our faith. Then our faith grows. Do you think that when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it was the first test of his faith? No. The very first test was when God called him to leave everything he knew, including his family, and go to a land that he would show him. And Abraham partially obeyed because he took his father and went to Haran. And after his father died and God called him again, Abraham fully obeyed. And when he arrived in Canaan, there was a famine in the land. What did Abraham do? Well, he did not seek God. He went to Egypt. And his faith failed because he said his wife was his sister. He said, this is Sarah is my sister. Later, God delays the promise of his son. What does Abraham do? He fails again by having relations with Hagar, which resulted in the birth of Ishmael. And then later, Abraham fails again by saying again that Sarah, his wife, is his sister. What I want you to understand is that Abraham failed time and time again. When his faith was tested, he had moments of great faith. Great faith and moments that weren't so great. Just like us. But note that it was through the testing of his faith that his faith was strengthened. And without the testing, and yes, even the failures, his faith would not have grown. So take courage. You may be going through a severe trial. You may be going through a difficult time. But have faith. Take courage from the word of Peter when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Testing of our faith has a purpose. It reveals that it's genuine and it helps us grow. Secondly, I want us to see that when God tests our faith, we need to obey. When God tests our faith, we need to obey. Now I realize I just tried to give some encouragement to us and knowing that Abraham failed many times, in fact, in his faith journey, but that's not an excuse for disobedience on our part. We can't say, well, you know what? Um, Abraham failed, so it's no big deal. It's okay if I fail. It's easy to say that when God tests our faith, we need to obey, but it's hard to do. And we can look at this passage and note that Abraham's response, and, and it helps us to 
better respond when our faith is tested. So let's see what happened. Abraham obeyed even when God's command seemed to be a contradiction. Abraham obeyed even when God's command seemed to be a contradiction. I want you to stop and think about Abraham's obedience for a moment. Because what God was asking Abraham to do was a complete contradiction to the promise that God had already given him. Can you imagine Abraham receiving this command? It had to be incredibly difficult. Furthermore, even though Abraham responded immediately, it was a three-day journey where he was going. Can you imagine what must have been running through his mind, thoughts of doubts? There's no way that God could be asking me to do this. God promised me. God is a good and loving God. There's no way that he would ask a father to sacrifice his own son. This must be from Satan. Isaac is a promised one. It would defeat God's plan and purpose to kill my only son of promise. I mean, all these thoughts could have been running through his mind. We don't read that Abraham struggled in any way, shape, or form, though. All we read about it in Genesis is that God commanded Abraham to offer his son whom he loved, and Abraham got up early the next morning and obeyed God. Now, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 17, it says that Abraham offered Isaac. That verb is in the present tense. And it's perfect, active, indicative. What does that mean? It means that in purpose and intent, that he actually offered Isaac. And that he would have followed through if God did not stop him at the last possible second. Now I want to be abundantly clear here. God has never given a command like this either before Abraham or after Abraham. So that's not um, some sort of common thing. It was a unique call that happened at a unique time in history. So let's make that abundantly clear. Abraham had nothing to guide him. There was no scripture to tell him what to do. And, he, and we would presume that God spoke audibly to Abraham and that Abraham clearly recognized that it was God speaking to him. Today, we have the complete revelation of God written to us in the word of God. He rarely, if ever, speaks to us in an audible voice, though he perhaps would speak in other ways, but mainly he speaks through his word, and we should never, ever, ever think that God speaks anything that is a contradiction to his written word, because he would never command anybody to do anything that's a contradiction to his word. So when someone makes a silly claim like God told me to abort my baby or to blow up a clinic or to murder someone, that's not God. That's a word from Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light. God never commands anything contradictory to his word. I say that to let us know that we must be very careful with the application of Abraham's faith. However, we still must apply it. The application is straightforward. And that is this. When God commands, we obey. When God commands, we obey. And it does not matter if what He is commanding us to do is distasteful or difficult, we obey. Without disputing with God, we just obey. I had a chance to witness something similar to, to God commanding and obeying this week at our annual meeting in Dallas, 
As I watched Bart Barber, a member of the Executive Board of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, who fired their president for numerous infractions, take to a microphone and raise a point of privilege to be able to defend the actions of the executive board. It was not something that he wanted to do, but in faith he was obedient to what God wanted him to do, defending the actions of the board. And then I watched as a couple began to ream him out in front of his teenage son, who was devastated afterwards. But he was obedient. When God tells us to do something, we obey. We must obey when God commands. It may be to stay in a hard marriage, but we obey. Even though you would find relief in leaving, you obey. It may be the command to love that difficult person that you struggle loving, but you obey. It may be that God calls you to forgive someone who has wronged you in some sort of terrible way beyond recognition, but you obey. Church, there are many commands in the Bible that are not easy. They're just they're just flat out hard for us to do. But as sure as I am standing here, if you refuse to be obedient, if you dodge the commands of God, your faith will not grow. We must submit to God in obedience and our faith will grow. I want us to understand that even when it's hard, we must obey. Let me also say that there are times when we are confronted with the truths of God's Word and they're difficult truths, and we submit to them, even when it seems like a contradiction. If we want to grow in our faith, we must take the road of submission to God's truth, not the road of debating with God. That's not what Abraham did. Abraham didn't debate with God. He submitted to what God revealed to him. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God in his choosing of some for salvation, but not everyone, is such a truth. It causes many people to stumble and can even cause people to turn their back on the truth of God's word or to treat others in ways that are lacking in grace. I also experienced some of that this week. The struggle people are faced with is they think that God's sovereign choice contradicts his will, that none should perish, and that they will say that God will never violate human freedom. Try telling that to Jonah or Paul, or many others in Scripture, where God violated their human freedom. The struggle is they can't reconcile these things together, so therefore they deny what Scripture plainly and clearly and repeatedly teaches, that God has mercy on whomever He will have mercy, and He hardens whomever He will harden, Romans 9.18. I hold to the belief that these truths are not designed for us to be argumentative over they're not arguments that we must win, but they are truths that we must in faith accept in submission to God's truth revealed in His Word. It doesn't matter what our emotions think. It matters what God's Word says. And so even though God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which was seemingly a contradiction to what God had already promised, Abraham was still obedient and submitted and obeyed. And you and I are called to do the same. We must be obedient. But also look what Abraham did. Abraham surrendered to God what was dearest to him. Abraham surrendered to God what was dearest to him. Stop and think about what God was asking Abraham to do. It would have been easier for God to say to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to take your life. 
And even though Abraham loved his wife, it would have been easier even for God to tell Abraham to let his wife Sarah go than to sacrifice his son Isaac, who was the son of promise. The text makes it clear that this was difficult for Abraham to offer up his son Isaac. Look what it says. First it says, and he who had received the promises. God had over and over again promised to make Abraham a great nation. And Abraham and his wife Sarah had waited for 25 years from the time when Abraham was 75 until he was 100 years old for God to give him their precious son Isaac, who was the son of promise. And they had waited all that time and had no hope of any other fulfillment. God gave them their special son, and now he tells Abraham to kill and incinerate this precious son of promise. Look what else it says. Abraham was in the act of offering up his only son. Yes, Abraham was the father of Ishmael. And he would have other sons. So the term does not mean his only son. But the term means his unique son, which is radically distinctive and without equal. His unique, distinctive, without equal son. He is the son of promise. This is the exact same term that John uses when he writes of Jesus to refer to God's unique son, his son in a way that no one else is or ever could be. That's what Isaac is to Abraham. The text is making it clear that there is no other son of promise. Isaac was it. We all love our children. As a father, I would do anything to protect my children from danger. And I want my children to do well and accomplish something in their life. But Abraham's hopes for Isaac were different because Isaac was the unique son of promise. He was it. There was no other. And Isaac was miraculously conceived after all of human hope was gone. And look at verse 18. It says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The author's again making clear that this was no easy task for Abraham. It had to be confusing. Before Isaac was ever born, Abraham went to God and asked of him to let Ishmael be the son of promise. But God refused. God told him that Sarah would bear a son and that they would call him Isaac. And God said that he would establish his covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Isaac is four, and at this time probably uh, Isaac is, is, is a son of promise. And at this time, he's probably a teenager. And God says, offer your son as a burnt offering. Nothing was more dear to Abraham than his son Isaac. And now God says, kill him. With the exception of Jesus going to the cross, I can't think of a more difficult command for anyone to ever face. And, and again, I think the application is difficult. But we can't ignore it and pretend like there is no application. And here's the application. God must mean more to us than any gift that he has ever given that we hold dear. God must mean more to us than any gift that he has given to us that we hold dear. So in other words, God must mean more to us than absolutely anything on the face of this earth. 
This is precisely why Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The point is that our love for Christ is to be far beyond our love for anything else or anyone else, even that which we hold dear. In fact, it should seem like hatred that we love Christ so much. Now that's not really a good Father's Day message, is it? You must hate your father? I mean, that doesn't sound real good. But that's exactly what Jesus says. Your love for Christ, the love for your father or anything earthly should look like hatred because you love Jesus that much. And church, it's so easy to be distracted and turn our attention away from God. It is far too common to focus on the gifts instead of the giver. Someone prays for a child for years and years and then God, by His grace, gives you that child. It's so easy to shift your focus on that gift. Or you pray for a husband or wife and after years of loneliness, God provides for you. There is a danger in loving your spouse more than you love God or loving your child more than you love God, what if you pray for a child and God grants you that child, but in God's providence, He takes that child in death? I have to be real honest with you, church. My greatest fear is losing one of my children, but I have faced the question on more than one occasion, God, if you take my child, or even if you take all of them, how will I respond? Do I love my children more than I love my God? Would I rage against God or would I say like Job, naked I came into the world and naked I will return. The Lord gives and He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do we possibly do that, church? By faith. By faith. Abraham surrendered what was most dear to Him. And we must be willing to do the same. We must understand that our love for God is so supreme that nothing should compare. That nothing should steal our attention away. That God must mean more to us than anything on this world. And that is radical because we rarely see that in any way, shape, or form today amongst Christianity. Because we love our stuff. And God takes a back seat to our things and to people. We can even allow ministry to steal our affection from God. It's so easy to get caught up in, in ministry and say, well, we're advancing God's kingdom while God takes a back seat to the work instead of being at the forefront of the work. I know from firsthand experience, I had a point in my life where I was working upwards of 80 hours a week in ministry. 
God put me in the hospital, and I firmly believe that he did that to reveal to me that I was relying on myself and I wasn't relying on him. God is to hold supremacy in our lives and our health in our hearts, even if it means offering up our Isaac. We must be willing to and even surrender what is most dear to us. And when God takes what we hold most dear to us, it is a test of our faith. It will reveal how much we really and truly love God and how much we really and truly love our thing. We will, like Abraham, obey in total surrender, or we will find fault with God. How was Abraham able to accomplish this? We know because the verse tells us using two words, right? By faith. Let's close looking at verse 19 and how Abraham's faith reasoned. Faith trusts God to keep his promises even if it is humanly impossible. Faith trusts God to keep his promises, even if it is humanly impossible. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did not or he did receive him back. This gives us great insight into the faith of Abraham. His faith reasoned that if God wants me to kill my son Isaac, then in order to keep his promise, He's going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. And that's absolutely stunning. That that would be his thought process. That if God's going to keep his promise, then he's going to have to raise my son from the dead. And the reason it's stunning is there's no resurrections recorded in the history of the world. When Abraham is going through this. Now when it says... He considered the Greek word there comes from a word where the root meaning is a numerical calculation. It is to calculate or compute something. The idea is that Abraham used his logic to reason the situation out in his mind. It is to take into account in light of the facts. Remember, faith trusts God to keep his promise even if it is humanly impossible. He says, God's going to keep his promise. Must mean he's going to resurrect my son. Humanly impossible. Where would that idea even come from? Abraham didn't have a blind leap of faith. Instead, he considered the character of God. He says, well, God is loving. God is all-powerful. God never lies. God is always faithful. God will always keep his promise. And he has promised that through Isaac... His descendants would be numbered. And Isaac had no children yet. But God had asked him to sacrifice his son. Therefore, God must be planning to raise him from the dead. Abraham's faith looked at the situation and said, This is now God's problem. It's no longer my problem. This is what God has asked me to do. In faith, I will do it. And the problem's not mine. The problem's God. God's going to have to figure out how he's going to keep the promise. What an audacious faith. We see in the faith of Abraham how our faith should work in the midst of any trial that we encounter, church. When we are in the midst of a trial, 
No doubt Satan will try to get us to doubt or deny an aspect of who God is. No doubt Satan will try to get us to deny the character of God. And Eve was in the garden. He implied that God was holding something back. Something good by forbidding them from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are times when we're in a trial and he will try to get us to doubt God's love. Well, God doesn't love you. This is why Paul writes to us. There is no trial that can separate us from the love of God. In Romans 8, 35-39. There will be times that he will try to get us to doubt that God is sovereign over all things. He does this by trying to, to convince us that God who is good and loving would never allow us to face a trial that we're going through. But when we fall into that trap, then we give Satan more power than God. When we're faced with a trial and we say, well, that trial can't be from God. It must be from Satan. You just gave Satan more power than God. When you say God would never allow us, allow this, this has to be Satan. You've maligned the character of who God is and you've usurped his authority by placing Satan over and above God because Satan can only go as far in his affliction as God directly permits him to go. All we have to do is read Job to know that. Go, go ahead and read it. Who brought up Job's name? Wasn't Satan. God says, have you considered my servant Job? God brought up Job's name. And God allowed Satan to go as far as he drew the line. Here's as far as you're going to go. God is always in control no matter what. Don't you dare give Satan more power than God. Don't you dare usurp the authority of God by saying Satan is more powerful, even when you do so, not meaning it. Be careful of your words, Christian. As we've already seen from verse 1, faith brings into our present reality things that are hoped for, which are the promises of God. And it proves the things that we do not see. Faith believes that God is. And not just that, but it is that He is a reward of those who seek Him. Faith, like Abraham says, even though my situation seems terrible and seems to go against what I know about God, however, based upon what I know about God and His promise to me, I trust that He will somehow work this thing out for my good. Faith can look at evil and say like Joseph did to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, look at the last phrase of verse 19. It says, Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The idea is that the sequence of events were so dramatic, it is as if Abraham did sacrifice Isaac and received him back. He considered him as dead and brought back to life. It was as if, as if Isaac died and was brought back to life for Abraham, which brings me to how foolish are we to hold on to what is not ours when God asks us to let go of it. How foolish are we when God says, you need to let go of this. That we hold on, clenched fist, white knuckled and said, no God, I'm not going to let go. It's mine. Faith, trust in God that He will keep His promise. Even if it seems impossible. Some of you may be sitting there right now saying to yourself, I could never have that kind of faith. 
I could never have the faith of Abraham. As I said earlier, Abraham's walk of faith did not start by offering Isaac. Abraham's faith had its ups and downs, but it grew to this ultimate display. The testing of our faith grows our faith. The point is that we must grow in the knowledge and the object of our faith. In this case, Jesus Christ, stop and think about what this testing of faith brought to Abraham. Isaac's life was spared. The faster or the fastest way to end a trial is to be obedient. And resigned to understand that that trial is from God. That's the fastest way to end it. Just to be obedient. Secondly, Abraham had the approval of God in Genesis chapter 22. God says to him, now I know that you fear God. Abraham proved that God meant more to him than anything else. Thirdly, Abraham now had a clear view of Christ. Clearer view than Christ than before. Jesus said that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. The closer we tread on the path of obedience, the more real and precious Christ will be to us. You want Christ to be precious to you? Then be obedient. Fourthly, Abraham knew a fuller revelation of the character of God. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, we read that Abraham named that place, The Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. We must understand the more we stand the testing of our faith, the more we know the character of God. Fifthly, the covenant was confirmed to Abraham, Genesis 22, 16 and 17. The, the road to full assurance of faith is through full obedience. Abraham refused to stand against God's love and refused to be disobedient to God's command, which was actually a demonstration of God's love. Think about it, church. God loved us even more than we love our own children. As Paul said in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church, faith, trust that God will keep promise even if it's humanly impossible in September of 1930 Moody Monthly described the progress of Arthur and Ethel Kiley's pioneering work with the Nambicura Indians in Brazil they had made good progress and I quote overcoming prejudice cultivating confidence acquiring a smattering of their language, and giving the first demonstrations of Christian love. However, two months later, December 1930, the issue of Moody Monthly reported, tragic deaths of Arthur Tylee, Mildred Kratz, a nurse who had joined the work, and the Tylee's baby at the hands of the very Indians they loved and served. While the Tylees had made some progress in gaining their confidence, a conflict developed between the Indians and the government workers who were trying to wreck a telegraph line through the area, and apparently the tribe's animosity towards outsiders confused them and led them to attack the missionaries, who were easy targets as they opened the homes of the Indians. 
Mrs. Tiley was severely wounded but survived. She wrote a letter on January 4th, 1931 from the very place where she lost her husband, her baby, and a friend. She started the letter by thanking those who had faithfully prayed, assuring them that they were not at fault for the attack. Then she wrote these words. We must believe that all happened according to the plan of an all-wise and loving Heavenly Father. Do you get that? Her husband, baby, and friend murdered. We must believe that all happened according to the plan of an all-wise and loving Heavenly Father, even to the smallest detail. I do not say we must understand, but only believe. She went on to describe the details of the attack, which left her unconscious after she had witnessed her husband's murder. And then she wrote, As I came back from the darkness of unconsciousness, to find myself not only without my own family, but to find my entire household gone. It was to know a father's care so tender, so gentle, that even the intense loneliness of the first days of separation was made sacred and hollow. The kindly light that never fails made even those days luminous with His presence. So I ask you to believe with me that no accident has happened. No accident has happened, but only the working out of our Father's will. Her baby, her friend, her husband, murdered by these Indians. No accident has happened, but only the working out of our Father's will. To you who knew and loved Arthur, I beg you, not to mourn him as dead, but to rejoice with me that he has been called to a higher service. Church, God will test our faith. And he may even take what is most dear. And when he does, he must surrender. And when he says, that thing is most precious and dear to you, you give it to me. You must surrender. Knowing he will keep his promise. No matter what, knowing that nothing can separate us from him. Trust in his promise of heaven. And that can never be taken from us. So church, I beg you that every one of us would climb higher in faith. I beg you that we'd step out in obedience faith and watch God work what we think is impossible. Where's your faith at this morning? Where is your faith this morning?
just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. I will give you a chance to respond to the message. If God has spoken to you in any way, I want to give you that opportunity. Be standing down front. If you want to talk later, I'll talk with you later. However God is leading, I pray you would respond in faith this morning. Let's pray.